Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. 200 years after the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, slavery still persists, and a lot closer to home than you may think. Coming up this half hour, slavery, past and present, in New York City. Women's and human rights groups say New York is a major port of entry, transit, and destination for human trafficking. On this morning's show, we'll hear about efforts to crack down on what's known as modern-day slavery. We're not just thinking of people who have been, quote, enslaved and chained into a basement. It's a lot more subtle than that. But first, the mistakes of yesteryear. Most New Yorkers like to think of the city as progressive and open to people of all races. But the latest slavery exhibit at the New York Historical Society portrays the city in a much darker light. New York divided slavery into the Civil War, delves into the city's racist past after abolition. I spoke to its curator, Richard Rabinowitz. New York has always been a very significant commercial center, and in the course of that development, It's been a part of the economic fabric of the colonial world and then of the United States. And the United States could be said to be a country that was conceived in liberty and grounded in slavery. It's hard to overestimate the importance of slavery in the economy of the colonial era. And New York, first New Amsterdam under the Dutch and then New York under the English, is really developed as a port that can supply Caribbean sugar plantations with foodstuffs, with timber, with other kinds of merchandise. That's really the economic purpose of the North American colonies. So without slavery and without the slave-grown production of the plantations in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in what we now know as the American South, there really wasn't any viability for the North American colonies. We have all been taught that people came here seeking religious uh, freedom or economic opportunity. And while that is, of course, true, the only viable way they could remain here and make livings for their families was to key into a global economy. Globalization wasn't invented in 1990. So New York had a very significant role in the economy of the 17th and 18th century economy in which slavery played an important part. And New York also had slavery. Slavery existed in all the British colonies from Georgia all the way up through uh, Nova Scotia. So it's not a matter of the South. And during the 18th century, as much as 42% of the households in New York and Manhattan, New York City, had slaves in their households, maybe only one or two. This is not the familiar picture we have of huge numbers of black people living on slave plantations growing cotton as existed in the antebellum South. But there was slavery was everywhere in pre-Revolutionary War New York, and perhaps 20% of the population was black. Gradually, slavery became, for New York itself, economically unviable as the city's economy began to shift in the 19th century. And as ideas about, about liberty began to spread, slavery was abolished only very gradually in New York until 1827. But meanwhile, New York became even more powerfully engaged in this boom economy. And the great boom of the 19th century is the cotton economy. Cotton is the miracle product of 19th century America. Seven-eighths of the cotton in the world comes from the southern states of the United States. Most of it is sold to Britain and to France and to Germany, where it's turned into cotton cloth. New York merchants 
were extremely shrewd and realized that by lending money to southern planters and southern merchants, they could divert large portions of the shipment of cotton on the way to Europe. They could bring them into the port of New York, transfer them to other ships, and send them out of here. And New Yorkers could grab as much as 38% of the total value of all the cotton that was being shipped. Cotton was far and away the most valuable uh, United States export. It plays a role similar to what oil might play, let's say, in modern-day Nigeria or Angola. So it's an extremely important product. And so important was cotton then to the New York economy that New Yorkers became politically and economically, economically certainly, and then politically and culturally very supportive, not just of cotton trade, but of the cotton growers, the slaveholders in the South, and of Southern merchants, and of Southern politicians so that New York becomes a part of a political alliance with the Democratic Party between the northern traders in cotton and the southern growers of cotton. What's also interesting is how welcomed southerners were in New York City. They frequented the hotels, etc. Well, we know that there are about 100,000 southerners came to New York each year. Until the late 1830s, you could bring, even after slavery was abolished here, you could bring your slaves and you could put them into the cellar of your hotel, and they would be kept under watch, and you could keep them essentially enslaved in New York for a period of nine months. Finally, that was changed in the 1830s, late 1830s. Southerners purchased goods in the great New York department stores. They went to the theater. They were celebrated. They were the height of society. New York merchants loved the idea of marrying their daughters off to these men and setting them up. So by this became a very important part of the cultural life, the economic life of the city to see these men strolling about. Slavery was abolished in New York in 1827, but yet, as you say, there was a pro-slavery movement here in New York, but there was also an abolitionist movement at the same time. Right. New York is the center of publishing. It's the center of newspaper publishing, magazine publishing. And so it becomes a center for political agitation. And one of the most remarkable phenomena in American history is the fact that a political movement emerges in the 1820s It starts with uh, an opposition to the idea of colonization, that is, to sending black people back to Africa. And this movement we call abolitionism espouses the idea of immediate emancipation. And that movement is remarkable because in a matter of 30 or 35 years, it succeeds in overturning one of the most important economic institutions, that is slavery, in the United States. It's hard to imagine. It's as though somebody started a movement in 2007 and said, we're going to uh, abolish automobile transportation. And in 30 years, there would be no more cars on, on the roads. And that's the equivalent to the kind of enormous transformation that the abolitionists generate. And a lot of that movement is, ha- is headquartered in New York. It's a very innovative political movement. It's really the beginning of what we call advocacy politics. When we think today about environmentalism or either side in the abortion controversy or issues about economic equity, those are issues related to causes, and Americans commonly organize themselves, and they put out bumper stickers, and they sign petitions, and they organize political movements. The abolitionists pioneered most of what we can consider advocacy politics, and they did it right from their headquarters on Lower Nassau Street in Lower Manhattan, and they became an enormously important movement. Most of us, when we went to school, 
understood that entirely as a movement of white progressives, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and so on. What our exhibit is, shows is that in New York City itself, a very important strand of abolitionism came out of the black community within New York, black intellectuals, black activists, many of them were ministers, and they developed a theory of equality, of egalitarianism, which I think is actually tremendously important in American history. They were the first people in the United States to say that everyone deserved equal benefit of the law, the equal protection of the law. And many of the white abolitionists who were opposed to slavery in the South were not so passionate about equality in the North. And so they turned away from dealing with things like excluding blacks from streetcars and steamboats or keeping black children out of public schools. So these young black intellectuals in New York City, uh, the chief one in my mind, the most interesting one, is a, a young doctor named James McCune Smith, the first black doctor in the United States. McCune Smith is a leader in this intellectual movement to create a really true race-blind democracy in the United States. How difficult was life for free blacks at this time? Well, it's getting more difficult, uh, except for some number of people like McCune Smith who are well-educated and who can really work as professionals or teachers or ministers. The ordinary black uh, New Yorker is suffering from gradually from being pushed out of skilled labor jobs. As European immigration begins to swell in the 1820s and 1830s, thousands of, of new New Yorkers are coming from Ireland and then from Germany, and they are taking most of the industrial jobs, most of the construction work. So blacks are forced into work, garbage collectors, boot blacks, porters, it's sometimes as sailors, Women become domestic servants, and even the domestic servants, they begin to lose those positions to young Irish girls who are coming here. There was a lot of outcry about giving blacks the right to vote. Well, New York State actually passes a new constitution in 1821, which deliberately puts a property requirement only on black voters. And it says that they have to demonstrate that they own $250 of real estate in order to be eligible to vote. And the number of black voters in Manhattan, in New York County, drops from about 1,000 down to 16 by the mid-1820s. And over the course of the whole next 40 years, black people continue to have petition campaigns, legislative campaigns to finally get rid of that piece of discrimination. And New York State actually never rescinds, never changes its own constitution until the United States federal constitution in the 15th Amendment says that the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race. And finally, New York has to agree. I think that most New Yorkers are going to be shocked to recognize. In the exhibit, we have a remarkable document. It's the it's a legislative uh, resolution passed by the New York State Assembly and the New York State Senate taking away the ratification of the 15th Amendment by New York State. In other words, after they had ratified, again, the Democrats returned to power in 1870 and they voted to rescind their ratification 
of the equal uh, vote amendment of the of the 15th federal amendment to the federal constitution so new york state continued to drag its heels on black equality all through the 19th century. Describe for us the history behind how black communities developed here in the city. In the 1820s and 30s, many blacks settled in the region that's in a part of New York that's called the Five Points. And this is an area which is uh, historically very rich. It's now been pretty much obliterated from public view. But if you look, go down to Mulberry Street and you see where Mulberry Bend turns uh, in what's now Chinatown was once part of Little Italy, and before that was the Five Points. Um, it's where five streets came together, Worth Street and Baxter Street and, and Orange Street and Anthony Street and Leonard Street all came together at this one intersection. And black people lived there. After the 1834 riots, blacks began to disperse so that by 1863, they're living pretty much everywhere. And then finally, in the late 19th century, blacks begin to consolidate their communities in the West 60s, an area called San Juan Hill, and then, of course, to Harlem in the 19-teens, to Weeksville in Brooklyn in the 1840s and 50s, and then that expands ultimately to form a black community in central Brooklyn in the 20th century. We call that Bedford-Stuyvesant. So these two very large black neighborhoods really didn't exist in the 19th century. Black people lived in clusters uh, in, in right near um, Washington Square, there was an area called Little Africa, which was a black community on Mineta Lane. Uh, there's a little village actually in Central Park that was destroyed when Central Park was built called Seneca Village that was uh, right about right where the New York Historical Society, right across the street from the New York Historical Society. And that's really where there was another black community. There were always whites living in these communities, intermarrying with black people. There was not a rigidly segregated society the way we might think of it in the, in the American South. What impact did the pro-slavery attitude here in New York have on popular culture and public life in New York City? Well, all of us know that New York became the entertainment capital of the United States, but very few people know that the minstrel show, the minstrel show where um, an actor, a singer, a dancer actually puts on black face makeup, burnt cork makeup, and dances around in a parody, in a satire uh, uh, caricature of blacks, that actually emerged in New York in the 1830s. And it's part of the commonplace racial prejudice of the time. You could have read it in the daily newspapers, you could have read these instances of racial prejudice, and you could see it on the stage. The, the minstrel show becomes fantastically popular. The Bowery theaters are filled with patrons every single night, and they're doing these songs and dances which are supposed to represent blacks on plantation life. Most of these actors have never been within a thousand miles of a plantation, so they don't know anything about that. So that grows. Meanwhile, there are also scientific lectures that are being given um, that talk about the separate creation and the inferiority of black people. There are ministers who talk about how God created blacks in a separate creation that the uh, or that the the son of Noah, Ham, is cursed and black people are cursed with the curse of Ham. So there's a tremendous widespread cultural expression of racism, uh, of racial prejudice. They didn't use the word racism. And then this explodes, of course, periodically in race riots. Now, in the 20th century, we think of race riots. We've had a sad experience 
in the 20th century of race riots within black communities in which there's a lot of violence against the police or against white shop owners and so on. In the 19th century, race riots generally have are mobs of white men who run through the streets burning down black buildings, burning out black businesses, attacking black churches, destroying them. And New York periodically has these absolutely vicious, horrific race riots, the most terrible of which is the worst incidence of civil disorder in American history. In the middle of the Civil War, in July of 1863, most of these riots occur in July, in the heat of the summer. In July of 1863, there's an explosion of antagonism, anger, at the passage of a new conscription law um, that threatens to draft uh, many young New Yorkers. Many of them are Irish uh, workers, working class people. And a lot of them begin to riot, and they run through the streets of New York for four days, uh, burning down tenements in which black people live, lynching black people on the streets, cutting bodies apart on the streets, burning people. It's a terrible, horrible incident. Finally, the United States Army uh, brings back the 7th Regiment from Gettysburg, and they come and they finally suppress what we call the Civil War draft riots. Many people today think that prejudice is just part of human nature. Do you think that prejudice in New York was a direct result of what happened in the 1800s? Prejudice is really not a natural phenomenon, and uh, it's really created by a political class, by newspaper editors who are fomenting hatred in order to build political support for their candidates. The press in the 19th century was very deeply tied into politics. Most newspapers were allied with one political party or another. And racial prejudice was a deliberate creation. Richard, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Richard Rabinowitz is the curator of New York Divided, Slavery and the Civil War. The exhibit runs through September 3rd at the New York Historical Society. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Borarki. It's hard to believe in today's day and age, but slavery is alive and well in New York City. Joining me in the studio to talk about slavery and human trafficking is Gabriela Villarreal. She's the training and advocacy coordinator at Safe Horizons Anti-Trafficking Program here in New York City. Gabriela, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. What do we mean when we say human trafficking into modern-day slavery? Human trafficking is defined as the recruitment or obtaining of a person for the purposes of involuntary servitude. Now, those means can come across as a variety of forms. People may be forced. They may be coerced into involuntary servitude. And quite often we see outright fraud of people who were promised high-paying jobs, 
here in the United States, and the reality is quite different when they arrive here. One of the major cases in the United States that helps spur the Trafficking Victims Protection Act is a, the Pauletti case. You may recall in the late 1990s a case involving deaf Mexicans who were forced to peddle trinkets on New York City subways. That case involved over 50 people who were trafficked and forced via sexual and physical assaults into peddling these trinkets into New York City subways. And that was a really first case in contemporary times that really said to us, you know, cases of involuntary servitude take a variety of forms and we cannot box them into certain certain situations of just trafficking for the purposes of commercial sex acts or trafficking for the purposes of domestic servitude. Really, it's a human rights violation that occurs in a variety of forms. It's mind-boggling to think that here in New York City, slavery exists. One of the reasons why New York City is such a hotbed for transit and destination for trafficked persons is uh, the large immigrant population that we have here, as well as our major ports of entry, Newark, JFK, LaGuardia, as well as the open ports that we have. And we have a huge demand for labor. So easy to blend then when someone traffics someone to New York because of its large immigrant population, easy to just vanish, disappear? Well, actually, the entire nature of human trafficking and modern day slavery is covert. When you think about the types of uh, forced labor people are placed in. These are labor situations where people are geographically. So these could be our neighbors. They could be living right next door to us. Absolutely. We have cases in of trafficking that are in Brooklyn and Queens. We've seen cases in Nassau County, all varieties of, of trafficking, whether it's forced into domestic work, We've seen people who have been trafficked into restaurant work where it could be they have interactions with people every single day, whether it's it's a larger community or it's within a you know simple transaction. It could be women who are forced into commercial sex acts within a brothel that's placed in a home. It's quite pervasive in our communities and quite hidden in many ways. Why aren't they shouting? Why aren't they screaming, I'm being enslaved, I'm being forced to do this? There are a wide variety of reasons why people don't identify themselves as trafficked. They may not understand that the situation they are in is actually a federal crime here in the United States. They may not know how to speak English. They may be so geographically isolated within a home or out in the suburbs where they wouldn't even know where to turn for help. And quite often, there is this climate of fear where they are coerced into their situations. There is also feelings of foolishness. People feel like, how could I have been duped into this situation? How could I believe that someone would recruit me? And here I am in the United States. I have this huge debt that I need to pay off. And it's just my own fault. So a variety of patterns take place to, to keep someone from coming forward. Where are people being trafficked from? Are there key places? At Safe Horizon, a majority of our clients are from Central and South America. However, in the entire New York City area, we've seen patterns of victims of trafficking from East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, as well as Eastern Europe, 
the former Soviet Union, as well as Africa. It's a real wide variety of, of regions. I would say no continent has not been affected by cases of trafficking. Who are the traffickers? Who are these people? Traffickers can be romantic partners. Traffickers can be employment agencies. They can be a husband and wife in cases of trafficking for domestic servitude. It really can be a wide variety of of people. So really, it can be quite a challenging issue to attack because the traffickers take on so many different forms. Because there is such a veil over this industry, how do these people come to you? Do you find them? Do they come to you? How does this work? Initially, when we started the program, majority of our referrals were from federal law enforcement, the Department of Justice, as well as Immigration and Customs Enforcement. But through the growth of the Safe Horizon program, we have found that a more effective way has been partnering with ethnic-based and community-based organizations. We really focus training other first responders in the community, whether that is a victim advocate at a small uh, ethnic-based organization. We focus some of our efforts working with healthcare workers who may identify someone in a health clinic. We have also worked extensively with the New York Police Department to identify cases because we believe that quite often they may interact or respond to a call of, say, an assault or perhaps a call of sexual assault that may end up being a case of human trafficking. Is the NYPD being trained to identify this kind of thing in the city? Yes, NYPD has received training and works collaboratively with Safe Horizon as a part of a human trafficking task force. This human trafficking task force was initiated and funded by the U.S. Department of Justice to get federal and local law enforcement agencies involved with service providers such as Safe Horizon to really take a look at a multidisciplinary approach to combating human trafficking. So we have trained on numerous occasions NYPD, uh, beat comps, all the way up to executive levels. And I know that NYPD is focusing on internal training sessions for their staff. I'm still kind of baffled by this because, especially in a post-9-11 society, how are people getting through security officials at the airports and at the ports? That's a great question. You know, people actually come with documents. They may come over as a student, under a student visa, tourist visas. Uh, in certain cases, we have seen visiting dignitaries who are serving in, in missions to the United States as ambassadors or diplomats who are allowed to bring a certain number of domestic workers into the United States. And we've also heard cases of actual you know, border crossing. It's a pretty wide range. Any estimates on the numbers here in New York City? How many people might be here who've been trafficked? Estimates are very difficult to come across. Even in the United States government, the numbers have changed. The United States government has estimated anywhere from fourteen to 17,000 people who are trafficked into our country, with New York as one of the top three transit and destination sites. In 2005, New York had one of the highest concentrations of government-certified trafficked persons. I know there's a big push right now in New York for a strong anti-trafficking law. 
currently there is no law on the books, correct? That's correct. At this time, the New York State Legislature is looking at introducing bills to address the crime of human trafficking as well as service provision to survivors of human trafficking in New York State. The lack of that law, I would imagine, is making it easy for people to get away with this. To some extent, yes. I think that many local law enforcement agents who interact with trafficked persons or interact with traffickers are not aware that there is even a federal law addressing this issue. And having a state law will definitely help with combating human trafficking. Have you received any indication that the new governor, Elliot Spitzer, is inclined to support such a law or whether this is even on his radar screen? Yes, we know that Governor Spitzer actually put forward when he was an attorney general a bill to address the crime of human trafficking. We know that this is an important issue for him. Before the slave trade was abolished in the early 1800s, lawmakers weren't just grappling with moral issues, but the commercial and constitutional implications of abolition. Do you think that there is some concern somewhere back there, obviously I wouldn't think many people would admit it, that you know what, this is kind of helping to fuel the economy? It's a great question that I don't think is really being addressed necessarily at the state level, but I know that at the federal level, there are efforts to address it. But quite honestly, taking a look at our demand for cheap labor is very difficult. Um, Quite often, we, we would like to pretend that prevention efforts need to take place somewhere else and not take a look at the fact that perhaps our labor standards here and our labor laws need to be enforced, that minimum wage standards need to be enforced, and that there is, in fact, a demand for for cheap labor in the United States. Gabriela Villarreal, you are the training and advocacy coordinator at Safe Horizons Anti-Trafficking Program here in New York City. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for your time. If you'd like more information about Safe Horizon, visit safehorizon.org. Podcasts and archives of Cityscape are available at wfuv.org. That's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend.